Tonight we're picking up back in our study on knowing God, and we're moving into chapter 9 tonight. And we're in the section of knowing God where he is walking through some of the major attributes of God. And tonight we're talking about the wisdom of God. But in line with um, J.I. Packer's purpose in this book, we're not just looking at these attributes in an academic way. We're not just walking through it and then looking at the verses and, and getting a, just an academic or mental understanding of it. We want to see how this uh, affects our lives, how it draws us into deeper relationship with God. And one of the things I really appreciated about this chapter was the way that he weaved God's wisdom into our daily experience and the different circumstances of life that we go through whether it be trials or difficulties and how God is in his wisdom is using that uh, for our good and for his glory. And so I really appreciated that in this chapter. He begins by just asking the question, what does the Bible mean when it calls God wise? It says uh, wisdom is a moral as well as an intellectual quality, more than mere intelligence or knowledge. So when we talk about wisdom, we're not just talking about the knowledge of facts. We're talking about uh, how that knowledge is put into practice and in a moral, ethical way. And no one is better that than God, right? So God not only has omniscience, which is he knows all things, but he also is all wise, which means he takes that all-knowing knowledge that he has, and he uses it in the best possible way that could be done. So he is putting that knowledge into practice. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. In essence, wisdom is doing the best thing. It is, it is seeing the best thing, knowing the best thing, and then putting into practice, doing that best thing. And God is the best at that, isn't he? And so wisdom is really the practical side of moral goodness. Wisdom is found in its fullness only in God. And like all of the other attributes of God, wisdom is crucial to his essence, who God is. I've heard it put this way one time before that that God is essentially uh, the full collection of all of his attributes that and if you were to take any of those attributes away from God, he would no longer be God. And so uh, I've, I've talked about this before when we were looking at uh, the doctrine of God on Sunday nights, walking through the confessions. But God is simple in the sense that he is one. He is, he is who he is, and you can't divide God up into parts. So he is wise, he is holy, he is just, he is all of these attributes, and they're all together. Uh, and that is who he is. And so wisdom is his essence. It's a part of that essence, and it's really indivisible from the totality of all that God is. And so there's a big difference between our wisdom and God's, isn't there? We seek to do the wisest thing, but our wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. Can't even begin to compare. 
Human wisdom can be frustrated by circumstances outside our control. And we see this happen all the time in our lives, don't we? Where we take the knowledge that we have available to us, whether it be scriptural wisdom or even just practical, you know, experience wisdom that we've gleaned through our lifetimes. And we seek to do the right thing. We seek to make the best decisions, to make the right plans. But those don't always work out that way for many reasons. One, because we can't possibly see everything, right? So we, we do the best that we can with the knowledge and information and wisdom that we've gained through our lives, but we can't see everything, all the possibilities that may unfold. And so our wisdom is limited in that. Plus, not only can we not see everything, we can't control everything. And so there are things that happen that are outside of our control, beyond our control of the circumstances. And so our wisdom can be frustrated, but not so with God. God's wisdom cannot be frustrated because it is joined with his omnipotence as well as his omniscience. So not only does God know everything, but he's also all powerful. And so he can take that perfect knowledge of everything and his infinite power, and he can come up with the best plan. And he can put that into practice in his wisdom because he sees it all and can do all. And so in the chapter, he gives this quote, he says, power is as much God's essence as wisdom is. Omniscience governing omnipotence, infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom is a basic biblical description of the divine character. So it is all of God's attributes working in harmony to apply his wisdom. Wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. Power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united, and this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. So what's the point of having wisdom if you can't do anything about it? That would be useless. And what's the point of having all power if you don't have any wisdom? Like he says, that would be frightening, wouldn't it? For someone to be all powerful and not have the wisdom to know how to use that power but God is the perfect of power and of wisdom in using that in his world. I heard it put this way one time that, especially in relationship to our circumstances and and the trials and the difficulties that we go through in life, that if we could, trusting God's wisdom is, if we had the same knowledge that God has, the same view of things that God has, that in the end, we would choose the same thing for us that God has already chosen. That's trust in the wisdom of God. We've all had scenarios in our life where we think, you know, if I'd only known that, I would have done this differently. We've all had situations like that. Well, that never happens with God, does it? never happens with God. God never has a moment where he can say, if only I had known that I would do this differently. God knows it all perfectly from beginning to end. And so God never has to backtrack. God never has to use the phrase hindsight is 2020. He sees it all perfectly. And so God always does what is best and what is perfect. And trusting that would be if we had that same view of things that we would choose the same thing that God chooses because it's best. 
And so he brings his full knowledge, his full wisdom, and his full power to bear in accomplishing his purposes. God's almighty wisdom is always active and never fails. It's always at work in our lives, and it always accomplishes its purpose. But we cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end for which he is working. And he says, this is where we go astray a lot of times in our lives. And we start to question what God is doing because we have a wrong conception of what God's ultimate purpose is. In our world today, the, the general mood of our culture is that the most supreme thing that we can have as human beings is happiness. And so you go and you'll find all of these books, self-improvement books, self-help books that are about how to be happy. You know, ten, I, I read a book, 10% Happier. All of these different books that try to show you how to be happy as if that is the ultimate quest for us as human beings. And so we think that if God is love and God is good, that God should be giving us what makes us happy. But that's not God's ultimate purpose, is it? God's ultimate purpose is not necessarily to make us happy, at least in our definition of what happiness is. God's ultimate purpose is to bring honor and glory to himself by rescuing people and transforming them by his grace and making them holy. So our ultimate, God's ultimate goal for us is to be holy as he is holy and to seek him. And as we are holy and seek him and enjoy him, there we find happiness. It's an amazing thing that, that when you set up happiness as the end goal, it becomes elusive, doesn't it? it? It's hard to find. It's hard to reach it. As Ecclesiastes says, if you, if you search for happiness, it's like trying to grab onto the wind. You really can't grasp it. And so people search for happiness in all kinds of places, you know, wealth and, and money and sex and fame and all of these things. And that's where they try to find their happiness, but it's like grabbing the wind. It's, it's just not there. But when you seek God with all of your heart, as Jesus says, seek God in his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Seek God first, happiness comes because he is the ultimate good. So sometimes we can't see God's wisdom and understand it because we don't understand what he's ultimately doing. And what God is ultimately doing is he's working for our good. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. God's not just about making us happy or comfortable. So what is the goal then? What is, what is God's ultimate purpose? It's this, to love and honor him, to praise him for his wonderful works and creation, to use his creation according to his will, to enjoy both his creation and him. That was God's original pur purpose for Adam and Eve, wasn't it? To love God, to enjoy him, to praise him, and to, to enjoy his world that he made as a good gift from a loving God to his creatures, but all in relationship to worship and glory of God. But then the fall happened. And instead of loving God, we turned our own way. 
like sheep. We left and we stopped praising him. We stopped being thankful. We stopped using the creation to praise God and we started using the creation to worship it. And everything is all out of whack. It's out of sorts. But God, that's still God's ultimate purpose. And so he says, and though, even though we have fallen, God has not abandoned that first purpose. Still, he plans that a great host of humankind should come to love and to honor him. His ultimate objective is to bring them to a state in which they please him entirely and praise him adequately, a state in which he is all in all to them, and he and they rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love, people rejoicing in the saving love of God set upon them from all eternity, and God rejoicing in the responsive love of people drawn out of them by grace through the gospel. So in other words, that original purpose of us loving God, praising God, living in perfect harmony with God, God is still at work accomplishing that purpose. But now in redeemed people that he has purchased with the blood of Christ and is transforming and one day will bring us into a new heavens and a new earth that is even better than Eden when all of those purposes will be completely fulfilled between God and his people. And so the ultimate purpose that God is doing in us will only be realized in the next world, in the new heavens and the new earth. But he's working on us now, isn't he? So that that perfect harmony, that perfect purpose that God is working out in us, we're not there yet, but he's still working in us to accomplish that purpose. So God is drawing individual men and women into a relationship of faith, hope, and love toward himself, delivering them from sin and showing forth in their lives the power of his grace. So he's working in us. He's changing us. He's transforming us. And so because God's ultimate purpose for us runs this deep, then we have to understand how God relates to his people and why he does the things that he does. And so he, got, he brings us back into the Old Testament to show us some of the Old Testament characters and the way that God dealt with them. He said, no clearer illustrations of the wisdom of God ordering human lives can be found than in some of the scriptural narratives. And so he talks about Abraham. And you look at Abraham and you read through those stories of Abraham and you find a man who is, has many faults, don't you? Abraham had a lot of faults. There were times when he was fearful. He feared for his life when they would go into a new place. And so he said, Sarah, lie for me and tell them you're my sister. Uh, there were times when he, he didn't have the, the strongest faith, the strongest trust. There were times when he was, they were impatient. And Sarah says to Abraham, just here, take Hagar and, and accomplish the plan that way. And they were impatient. So he is, he's a man who is flawed, but yet God was working in him, wasn't he? God was working in Abraham. And though flawed, he was teaching him patience. He was teaching him faith. He was teaching him how to depend on God, not in his own wisdom. So that by the end of Abraham's life, his faith is to the point where God can tell him, take this son that you've been waiting your whole life for and go sacrifice him as an offering. And he obeys. It took a long time in Abraham's life to get him to that point. 
And there were many flaws and stumbles along the way, but the writer of Hebrews is right. Abraham was a man of faith. And God was working in him. And so Abraham needed to learn the lesson. And that the lesson that he needed to learn most of all was to learn the practice of living in God's presence, seeing all of life in relation to him and looking to him and him alone as commander, defender, and rewarder. So God had to strip Abraham of all of everything else that he was depending on so that he could depend on God and trust God. And then he talks about Jacob. And if Abraham had flaws, Jacob surely had some flaws, didn't he? Jacob was a trickster, a deceiver. He conned his brother out of his birthright, out of his blessing. He ended up with Laban and the shoe was on the other foot, wasn't it, with Laban? It's not not an accident that that happened in God's plan, is it? So God's transforming Jacob. He's he's shaping, molding him into the person that that he wants to use him to, to be. But Jacob has to learn some lessons along the way. And in order to show Jacob how despicable he himself is, the shoe ends up on the other foot. And he ends up deceived and tricked by Laban when he wanted to marry Rachel. He ends up marrying Leah and has to work another seven years for Rachel. The deception is on the other foot. Um, So you see Jacob going through this, all of these different uh, steps along the way in which God is teaching him lessons. He wrestles with God uh, in that, uh, God shows up and and they're wrestling and and Jacob says, don't leave. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so God touches his hip, puts it out of socket. He has to go the rest of his life with a limp as a perpetual reminder that Jacob, this is not about you. It's not about your abilities. It's about God. And so on all of these things, God had to strip him of his self-dependence Jacob's whole attitude to life was ungodly and needed changing. Jacob must be weaned away from trust in his own cleverness to dependence upon God. And he must be made to abhor the unscrupulous double dealing, which came so naturally to him. And so Jacob had to be made to feel his own utter weakness and foolishness, must be brought to such complete self-distrust that he would no longer try to get on by exploiting others, Jacob's self-reliance must go once and for all. These are not lessons that can be learned overnight, are they? (laughs) He went through a lot, didn't he? He went through a lot. And, uh, and there's, there's a lot in him that we can see in ourselves. And he had a lot of flaws, but God through a lifetime, right? These are not lessons to be learned overnight. Through a lifetime, God was working in him. He was teaching him lessons of faith. You have Joseph, and we all know this great story of Joseph and how he is mistreated unfaithfully or, or unjustly. And he's put in prison, sold as a slave, doesn't deserve any of this. But through it all, he's learning, isn't he? He's learning lessons. He's learning about God's providence. He's learning about patience. He's learning to trust all of these things. You can't learn without these, uh, these events. So Joseph was being tested. He was being refined and matured. 
He was being taught during his spell as a slave and in prison to stay himself upon God, to remain cheerful and charitable in frustrating circumstances and to wait patiently for the Lord. How do you work your muscles? You've got to work, right? You've got to pick up weights. You've got to swing the hammer. You've got to, that's how you work your muscles. Your faith is not worked in calmness. Your faith is worked in trial. Your, your patience is stretched when you have to wait. So all of these circumstances, God brought into their lives to teach them and to mold them. He says, once again, we are confronted with the wisdom of God, ordering the events of a human life for a double purpose, the individual's own personal sanctification and the fulfilling of his appointed ministry and service in the life of the people of God. Isn't that amazing? That God can have both of these purposes going on at the same time. He's got the whole picture in view, doesn't he? God knows what he what needs to happen for the sake of the whole history of mankind. The history of Israel as a people, the bringing of the Messiah into the world, all of that is in view when he's working in Joseph's life or Jacob's or Abraham's. And yet he's also doing something in them individually. He's doing it all at the same time. And as a perfectly wise and providence and sovereign God, he can do all that at the same time. And so he's accomplishing all these things at the same time. And then he turns our attention toward the end of the chapter to the trials, the difficult things that we go through. And so in light of what the Bible teaches us about what God is doing, he says, we should not, therefore, be too taken aback when unexpected and upsetting and discouraging things happen to us now. We're, we're not different from Abraham or Jacob or Joseph or Paul. We have to be taught lessons, don't we? And sometimes those lessons have to be taught to us the hard way. Learning the lessons of faith and developing the fruit of the spirit of joy and love and patience and self-control, those things are not learned in a book. They're learned from the Bible conceptually, but oftentimes they're learned and, and developed in the this, in this sense of wisdom experientially, aren't they, in life. So we shouldn't be surprised when God brings these things into our lives. So what do they mean? They mean simply that God in his wisdom means to make something of us, which we have not attained yet. And so he's dealing with us accordingly. As Paul says in Philippians 3, I'm striving for the goal, but I've not yet attained. I'm not there yet. And so God is finishing the work that he has started. Philippians 1.6. He is doing a work in us. He's going to bring that work to completion. And that work involves some ups and downs in our lives. Perhaps God's purpose is simply to draw us closer to him in conscious communion with him. He says it, it could be God's trying to teach us patience. Maybe he's trying to teach us our faith to trust in him. Maybe he's teaching us how to be joyful in different circumstances. But he says, maybe God, for one thing that he's doing, is really just drawing us closer to him. He says, it's often the case, as all the saints know, that fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet, and Christian joy is greatest when the cross is the heaviest. Job 
found out what it took to draw close to God, didn't he? Job's life was one for the record books in terms of trial and tragedy. And yet, in the end, he saw God. He says at the end of the book, I have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now, now I, I have a better understanding of who you are. Job really never got all the answers as to why God did what he did. But what he got instead was God. He got a closer relationship with God. He says, we may be frankly bewildered at things that happen to us, but God knows exactly what he is doing and what he is after in his handling of our affairs. Always and in everything, he is wise. We shall see that hereafter, even where we never saw it before. So we may live our whole lives and never completely understand why certain events or circumstances happen to us. But God knows. He knows them perfectly. And one day, perhaps in glory, we will be able to see how all those pieces fit together and what God was doing. So how do we, how do we respond to these difficult situations? If we can't see what God is doing in the moment, we don't understand how this all fits together. How do we respond? He suggests these things. He says, first of all, receive them as from a wise and loving God. Know who's in control and from whom they come. God is wise. He's loving. He is working for your good. He says, ask ourselves what response to them the gospel requires of us. So a difficult situation comes into your life. One, remember that it's God, the wise and loving God who is in control of it. Second, what does the Bible teach? What does the gospel teach in how I should respond to this? With patience, with joy, with trust, whatever. What does the Bible say about how to respond to this? And then he says, see God's face specifically about them. And that's perhaps one of the purposes of the trials is to cause us to get on our knees and to seek God and to draw closer to him. Paul found this out, didn't he? Paul found out what it was like to go through trials and difficulties. We read in 1 Corinthians that Paul had what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Perhaps some ailment, some physical limitation. We don't know exactly what it was. But he had something that was uh, debilitating to him. He prayed for God to remove it. But the only answer that he got from God was this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If for no other reason, Paul got the answer, I just want you to depend on me. So that when you can't make it on your own, that you've got to depend on my grace. But then as Paul thought about it, he says, perhaps it was because of these surpassingly great revelations that God had given to him that God brought this thorn in the flesh to him to keep him from becoming proud. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. And with all that Paul had the privilege of seeing and knowing, and, and even this description of him seeing the third heavens, as he describes it, and receiving these direct revelations from Christ, it could be the temptation there to become proud and be lifted up 
God gave him this to keep him low. What might seem like a, a bad thing from an earthly physical perspective was from an eternal spiritual perspective, very, very good because it kept him humble. And then he says, so therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And this is similar to what he says in Philippians 3, 2, where he says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, even if I have to go through more suffering, more difficulty, more trial, if that helps me to know Christ better, then I welcome that, he says. So he says, I'll boast. I'll be glad about my weaknesses so that Christ's power, his grace can work in me. And so he concludes the chapter with this quote. He says, whatever further purpose a Christian's troubles may or may not have in equipping him for future service, they will have been sent us to make and keep us humble and to give us a new opportunity of showing forth the power of Christ in our mortal lives. He says, and do we ever need to know any more about them than that? We don't need to know every purpose that God is doing. If all that we have is that God is humbling us and causing us to depend on him so that his grace and power can work through through us, he says, that's enough. That's sufficient. I know Brother Venlin has said this to me before, and and I'm sure you've heard heard him say this before too, but uh, when you can't see God's hand, when you can't trace his hand, you can't see what he's doing, trust his heart. Trust his heart. Trust God's wisdom. Trust his goodness. Trust his love. He is doing these things for our good.